Weekly Signals every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about taxpayers' privacy rights, and we know with the tax season upon us, everybody worries about Who's going to see our financial information? We also worry about taxes, what's going to be disclosed, what maybe might be exposed in a security breach, all sorts of worries that we have about taxpayer privacy. So I happen to have been reading recently in the Daily Journal, and I saw an article by Robert W. Wood, and it was entitled, Ruling is a Frightening Step Back for Taxpayer privacy rights. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is scary. And I don't know that much about tax law. And I thought it would be fabulous to invite him on our show. And we're so thrilled that he is going to join us today. Let me tell you a little bit about his fabulous background. Robert Wood is considered to be one of the leading tax lawyers in the United States. He has a nationwide tax practice based up in beautiful San Francisco and the founder of Wood and Porter, that's he is the founder of Wood and Porter, which is his own law firm. It, it is a tax specialty law firm, and he handles tax controversies, tax planning, tax advantage business transactions, and much more. He's a frequent expert witness concerning tax matters in litigation. Although his tax expertise is wide-ranging. He is particularly well-known for advising on the tax aspects of litigation recoveries and for handling independent contractor versus employee controversies, which has been really a big issue in recent years. He is a published authority and active speaker on many, many aspects of the federal income tax law. And Robert Wood has contributed more than 30 books. He's written more than 30 books and many hundreds of published articles dealing with tax issues. And he contributes regularly to tax columns for Forbes magazine and other publications. And I had the opportunity to go online and look at many of these wonderful articles. So you might want to go and look at his website at woodporter.com where you can see many of his articles and see all the great things that they do and use them if need be. So 
Robert, thank you so much for joining us from beautiful San Francisco. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be here. Well, we are excited to talk to you because tax season is upon us. And you've been a tax lawyer for 30 years. And me, with being a great interest and passion about privacy, I want to ask you, in your opinion, why should taxpayers be concerned about their privacy rights? Well, we live uh, we live in an age uh, that is full of uh, information, uh, almost endless information and information exchanges. Uh, everyone uh, uses email and computers these days, uh, and that's certainly true for most of their tax information and tax records. All sorts of communications uh, from and to tax preparers are done electronically, and the government, too, is, is very connected. So I just think uh, the need for vigilance is even more today than it used to be. Yes, and I have to tell you a story that you'll probably love, but um, I know of someone who had uh, been involved that came to me with a problem that her ex-spouse had um, was married to an IRS agent here in Orange County, and the ex-spouse's uh, wife actually accessed the ex-spouse's tax return and, you know, to get information about what was going on with the ex-spouse and her financial information. And uh, it just so happened that she also triggered an audit three years in a row <laughs> um, against the ex-spouse. So uh, in speaking with the accountant, we thought that was very weird because there was no change in any of those three years when she had to go th- for those audits. And wow. so when she got a letter for another audit from the IRS, she asked for a Freedom of Information Act request um, about why this audit, you know, all the information that was in there. And she wanted to know if there was an audit trail of who had accessed. Um, it, it, and she let the IRS know the name of the ex-spouse's new wife, and said that she thought that something was very fishy. And this is about the same time that, was it John Glenn who was asking for that, uh, you know, information about, wasn't he the one who was the congressman? Who, I think so. Yeah, who had asked for a um, an investigation into these kinds of privacy abuses by IRS agents. And uh, lo and behold, uh, we, we had gotten some information um, and then next thing we knew is that IRS agent was no longer working for the IRS. But those are, those are privacy issues, too, that, that uh, can be very challenging with the IRS. But I thought you'd get a kick out of that one because that's a real true story that I know very much about. Yeah. So wasn't there a, a recent oversight report about taxpayer personal data being compromised? We hear about that. I mean, besides these individual breaches... Tell us about that recent one. Yeah, no, it it, it was, and, and the kind of incident you're describing, Amari, uh, is unfortunate. And when you mentioned that the IRS person doesn't work there anymore, that is one of the one of the uh, top ten, I think it is, ways that IRS personnel can be uh, terminated is if they are um, acting in an unauthorized way, perusing data. I mean, they do take it seriously, but obviously there's some you know, some amount of it that occurs. The, the report that I think you're um, alluding to was actually the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. 
Some people don't even know that that's a role that exists, but it is. Um, I mean, the IRS is an enormous, uh, an enormously powerful organization, and so they are. Uh, and the government oversight is trying to, you know, always keep tabs on this. I think the the, the frightening thing about this study was, and it was, is a report that um, came out um, recently, but I mean, within the past couple of months, saying that. When you ask, when you uh, you or I, Mari, could do it, anyone can ask the IRS for a copy of one of your tax returns or for a transcript, which is similar to a tax return but sort of more compressed data, and it typically would cover more than one year. Um, but when you ask, um, 43% of the time, this study revealed, uh, there is a risk of unauthorized disclosure of your information. Uh, it's not terribly specific exactly what happens, but I think a lot of people, um, you know, understandably were upset and are upset that this kind of thing is happening. And and you you probably don't want, if you can avoid it, to be uh, you know, to be in the position of having to make one of these requests of of the IRS. So it's very important to to keep a copy of a return and maybe keep it in a backup. Um, place where, because I actually had a client whose house burnt down and all of their old tax records, which was in cabinets, was lost, and they had to get it from the IRS again. So, yeah, no, that, that is that is tough. I mean, and those sorts of, you know, you can't, uh, I guess, uh, um, you can't, you know, protect against every risk, but, but, but yes, I mean, certainly you want to keep um, uh, a copy of every tax return that you've ever filed. It's unlike records that you might say, well, gee, after seven years, there's no reason I want to keep these. I'm going to discard the records, backup records, and so on. You can do that with, but always keep the return forever. Uh, and if possible, as you say, Amari, um, if possible, have a backup uh, system, electronic, uh, you know, these days, a disk in your safety deposit box or, or something, so that you have the data, you know, in the event that you, you know, that your primary system uh, fails. Right. And I know that my accountant has all of my backup. So, but if you don't have a CPA to do that, then that's a problem. You know, I thought that you could get rid of things after seven years, and I guess what I've or ten years, I've been actually sending my stuff to to the shredder. You know, to the mm -hmm. sh I have a shredding company that comes actually and eats up alive all my stuff because I'm so worried about that information. You know, I mean, at my age, I got you know many, many, many years of tax returns. So I have been um, actually disposing of them through shredding after 10 years. Is that a problem? I, I didn't realize it would be. Um, it's not a problem. You could certainly do that. Um, I would recommend uh, against it, um, not because of any legal requirement, but simply because there are issues, tax issues, uh, that can remain alive and important for, you know, 20 years. For ah, example, okay. what if you bought a, a building, you know, a, a small commercial uh, office building, um, you know, 20 years ago, and then, you know, five years from now, so 25 years later, you sell it, uh, you know, and you bought it for $100,000, and then you sell it for a million dollars. Or and maybe these days it would be $5 million. Um, the the point is that uh, you can have you want to keep whatever records you you um, can keep, uh, but it might be helpful if you have treated that as a commercial building on your tax return to be able to show that it, that it was reported as acquired on a particular date. I don't think there would be anything terrible that would happen. Um, you, you probably wouldn't need that, 
but I'm just saying that uh, tax returns are not very big, and I think keeping them forever is is just a good practice, uh, at least mm-hmm. for me. Right, right. I would think if you had, if you owned a building, hopefully you would keep, even if it was 20 years, you would keep everything in there. I mean, I know for I don't own a building, but I but my own homes. Anything I have for my homes is a home file that yep. shows, you know, actual closing statements from, you know, 20 years ago. I have those, you know, yeah. uh, okay, those good. kinds of things. So I didn't think I needed the tax return. I just worry about all that financial information that could be, you know, acquired by somebody else. But that leads me to this. How do you feel about e-filing? I'm still really uncomfortable about e-filing because of all the challenges. What are your thoughts about e-filing? Um yeah, I, I won't win fans for this, but uh, I'm generally against it, at least for the, the kinds of clients that uh, I tend to represent. And I'll just say personally that I don't e-file. I file the old-fashioned way with a paper return. Me too. Um, as I say, I, I won't win fans for that. I know the IRS is uh, behind a huge campaign to encourage uh, e-filing. It's much easier for the IRS. Uh, if your return is very simple and you want a quick refund, um, it, it may be fine. I mean, certainly e-filing is is quicker. Um, the reason I am, um, it sounds like you may be too, the reason I'm reticent about it is that I think it gives the IRS far easier and better access to your information, enabling them to mine it uh, more effectively. Uh, I, I wrote that in a Forbes column recently and got, some angry comments, uh, <laughs> n- not not from the IRS, right. but uh, from from accountants um, primarily. E-filing does make their job easier, um, and of course, eventually, I think during our lifetimes, uh, it's going to be required. But for now, it's optional, and and uh, while it's optional, I wouldn't, from a, at least from a personal viewpoint. I know, and I have to sign um, for my accountant. I have to sign something why I am refusing to e-file. There's something that yeah. I have to actually sign when she sends it in, and it says that I, I I have chosen not to e-file or something. There's some affidavit that I actually have to sign because I won't e-file either. And I there's other reasons I don't e-file. I mean, I think those are really important that I wasn't even thinking about the way that they can mine things and, and do huge searches. And, oh, I mean, that's even more frightening when I think about that. Um, and and that's not even disclosed to taxpayers. But. No, it, it isn't. And I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. And this is very practical. But uh, but many accountants um, will. Uh, it, if, if we think about all of, at least I'll, I'll take myself. If I think about how many times I've hit the hit the send button when I really later thought better of it. Exactly. Um, think about that with an accountant on or about April fifteen, who you know is crazed and you're sort of not the last person to see it. In fact, you're, you know, you're not the last person to see the return. It's not like you get it in front of you, you can vet all the numbers and then right. you sign it and mail right. it. Right. Instead, they hit the send button. And, and I have seen some accountants, um, you know, good, perfectly good accountants, who are overwhelmed and they have lots of extra staff. and They haven't had think, much sleep in, in weeks yeah, and yeah. weeks, right? Yep. So I, I just think, uh, I mean... The, the the trend is inevitable. As I say, I don't think there's any doubt about it. It is going to be mandatory at some point. Uh, but I think for now, um, I would be I would be cautious uh, at least a little bit. I think the other issue is data breaches, 
And that worries me because, you know, there's some real, uh, you know, sophisticated people that can get into this stuff. And the other thing is when you're doing your e-filing, some people keep that on their computer without even encrypting it. Yep. And so I'm worried about not only in the hands of the IRS, but I'm worried about the transmission. I'm worried about hackers either way. And I'm also worried about people having this stuff on their computer when other people could have access to it and they're not protecting it. So what are some suggestions if you do want to e-file? What, you know, like you said, people who have simple returns and they want to just e-file, what are your thoughts about that? Any suggestions? Boy, I mean, I suppose the primary one um, would, and again, I I think most of the clients that I I deal with don't e-file, at least not yet. But I'd say um, try to keep um, keep the number of people involved to a minimum, and the number of um, you know the, the the sort of you have to make sure that you trust your advisors. I mean, fundamentally, you you want to ask something about their data protection systems and be sure that your information is only shared with somebody who needs to see it. Um, so it, it's not too dissimilar from any other kind of privacy issues, but uh, I guess. It is so easy to hit send. I think extra caution is is required. Let me ask you something. If we're not e-filing, and are they scanning in all of my tax returns? Yes. Okay, so would they still be able to data mine, or is it harder because it's not actually typed into their their program? I, I think there's a difference of opinion about that, and I don't know that anyone knows. Um, that is one of the arguments that has been used uh, against me when I made the, the public statements that, um, you know, if, as long as it's optional, that I would, I would choose not to e-file. Um, and that's one of the arguments that some of the big proponents of e-file have used, saying, look, the IRS can, can use the information in the same way. It's just harder for them, and, uh, you know, we should make it easy on them and give them all the data electronically. I, I don't know what... The, real position is, but I have my doubts. Yeah, yeah. I think it might be a little bit different because if they scan it and it's a PDF, it's not really within their system, so it might not be as easy to to scan. I don't know. I'm not a technologist, but I I still think the fact that when I send my tax returns, I send them return receipt requested. (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm very, very careful, and I worry about that. You know, I want to make sure that it got there, and I want to make sure that, um, you know, mail can be stolen too. Obviously, mail can be stolen. We hear about that mail theft. But like I said, I feel safer sending it return receipt requested, and I feel that um, the electronic way is, is much difficult. But you're right. It's going to be a problem. Maybe we need to build in some transparency as to how they're using it when it is electronic. What other ways are they using it? Yep. So tell us about the need to keep, no, I'm sorry, tell us about um, how to protect communications with our tax advisor. I mean, some people use H&R Block, and of course we know that there have been big security breaches with H&R Block. Um, I worry, and I'm always talking to my accountant, who I've had for, gosh, probably 25 years, you know, and I'm always talking with her about my concerns, so I, I think she's extra careful with that. But how do we protect those communications with our tax advisors and the people at the IRS? Yeah, I, I think it's the, sort of the same. That is, with your own advisor or with the IRS, I guess, first and foremost, it's 
basic things. Be concise. Be as concise and clear as you can. Um, answer only what you're asked. At least, certainly that's true with the IRS. Um, try to try to be, um, if they're asking you about three things, don't tell them about ten things. Um, another basic thing, keep a copy of everything that you send, um, whether it's to your advisor or to the IRS. Make sure that you have a good uh, written record. Oral communications, uh, the IRS uh, certainly tries, although it has obviously difficulties with this. They try to have uh, toll-free uh, you know, numbers where they try to answer questions and uh, about taxes in general or about you in particular. Um, it's fine to try to avail yourself of those things, but the, the oral communications are not worth the paper they're not printed on. Um, by which I mean, it's, you know, you can't rely on anything that's oral. You can't even prove that it happened. So, if there's anything that you communicate uh, that you want to rely upon, make sure you confirm it in writing. Um, another step is. is and and I want to go back, and I know what yeah. you mean, but I just want to, because I know a lot of the people that are listening are not lawyers. We have students at the university. We have business people driving by. When you say confirm it in writing. I just want to be real clear. Memorialize your conversation. If you talked with Tom Jones, you just write to him or write to whoever and say, pursuant to my conversation with Tom Jones today and what the date is, at what time, say exactly what you understood that that person told you and if that there's any discrepancy to please notify you immediately. Because yeah, ab- um, yeah, I just wanted to clar- clarify yeah. what you meant by I knew what you meant by it, but I don't think my audience understands what what that always means. Fair enough. I, I appreciate the, the clarification, and, and you're, I mean, you said it uh, well. You're absolutely right. It's something simple. It doesn't have to be a fancy uh, letter. Uh, if, it's, if you talk to, uh, you know, John Smith, oftentimes on the phone they'll give you their uh, ID number, their badge number. John Smith at the IRS uh, that you, you know, you owe a lot of money to. John Smith uh, at the IRS office uh, in your town uh, said that uh, they wouldn't take any further collection act- action for, you know, for another two weeks, and you know because you're supposed to do something in that time, give them a financial statement or something like that. Um, I mean, probably you should be represented, but let's let's say you're not. So, just you or know, you haven't I hired told, you yet. You haven't had a chance yeah. to hire an attorney yet. <laughs> well, right, and some things you can do yourself, but you but you should, as as Mari said, you should. Write a little note, handwrite it or type it, preferably type, but it doesn't have to be typed. But keep a but copy to, for yourself, yeah. yeah. To John Smith saying at the local IRS office saying that, that you're confirming your conversation of today's date in which he said that they wouldn't take any further collection activity until X date, you know, two weeks, put the date in, and, you know, if I've misunderstood anything, please let me know right away. Um, and, you know, thank you for your cooperation. Something and send it, like return that. receipt requested. Because yeah. they will say, yeah. and I mean, this is what I, I have to deal with victims of identity theft all the time. And, and if they write to a company, this has happened so many times. When you write to a big bureaucracy, they will say, we didn't get it. And, and my clients all write things return receipt requested. So when I end up getting involved because they can't get things resolved, they'll say, well, we never got it. And then I'll say, well, you know what? I have a copy of the return receipt right here, and it's signed by Sally Smith, and I will, I will scan it in and email it to you in a heartbeat. 
And then they'll yep. tell me something like, oh, our mailroom didn't get it to us. Well, whose fault is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's very important when it's something like what, you know, what we're talking about now, then, and Robert's telling you to memorialize in writing, you must keep a copy, send it return receipt requested. If it's that important, you better make sure that you have a copy and then staple the return receipt. And when the return receipt comes back to you, staple that and keep it in an important file. And you may scan it in or whatever, just to make sure that you have it in lots of places. But it's so important because these bureaucracies don't know what they're doing half the time. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's uh, it, unfortunately, um, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and uh, many of us um, it, can look back on something and think, boy, uh, yeah, I kept a copy, but I sure wish I had proof that uh, this right. you know, item got there because now it's my word against theirs. So exactly, you're and absolutely I, right. Yeah. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many cases last year I had of victims who big companies, big companies told us they never got it and we had the backup and it was just so embarrassing for them even when i ended up speaking to general counsel they said well, we, they never got it and i said oh yeah really look here it is here it is right here and then they can't say it anymore but unfortunately i hate to say it but they will tell you they didn't get it maybe they're lying maybe they're not lying maybe they just don't know maybe their files are poor maybe you know their electronic files are never complete so you got to protect yourself I want to tell you that we are so thrilled we are speaking to an attorney, a tax attorney from San Francisco who's considered to be one of the leading tax lawyers in the whole country. Robert W. Wood has a nationwide tax practice based in San Francisco, and he's the founder of the law firm Wood and Porter, and he's, it is a tax specialty law firm. He handles all sorts of tax controversies, and I found him because of an article he wrote in the Daily Journal, but he also writes columns for Forbes magazine, and you might want to go and look at his website with lots of great articles at woodporter.com. So let's get back to this. Um, What about the need to keep our receipts and backup information to support our tax returns? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those painful uh, details, I guess, but uh, my advice is to keep it all. Uh, There's a famous 1930 tax case, believe it or not, involving George M. Cohan, who was an early Broadway uh, impresario put on all sorts of musicals. Um, Cohan had no receipts uh, for rather huge entertainment expenses, but he convinced the IRS by other means, mostly by by his own testimony, that it actually spent the money on entertainment and travel. So there is some precedent for, you know, getting tax deductions without receipts, but it is darn tough, and my advice is don't try it. Keep those receipts. Right. You know, I I wanted to tell you another funny story, Um, and this is really important when we're talking about privacy. Uh, I got a phone call last year from a woman claiming to be the IRS, and she said to me that I had there was a discrepancy in one of my estimated payments because I I do quarterly estimated payments. And being that I am a fraud expert, I totally freaked out and I said, how do I know who you are? (laughs) You know, I don't even want to talk to you. I'm scared. And um, she said, well, I, you know, I, what's your social security number? And I said, you tell me what my social security number is. And she said, well, I can't tell you because how do I know I know who you are? So anyway, long story short, I said, 
tell me your name, tell me your, your employee number, and I will call the number that I know for the, you know, the local tax area in Laguna Niguel, California. So I did, and I found out that she was really her, and then I called her back, and we laughed about it. But to get a call out of the blue from somebody saying they're the IRS, it may or may not be true, and it may be what we call vishing, V-I-S-H-I-N-G. And that is where someone pretends to be from a, a governmental agency and they ask you information and you give it and you're scared and you just go ahead and give it. So I would just suggest she was very nice about it. She didn't blame me and she was OK. I said, it's nothing against you personally, but I've been a victim of identity theft. I deal with thousands of them. And um, so that's a privacy issue. And the other thing to worry about also is you may get an email called phishing and that's spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. And that is when you get an email that looks really authentic from the IRS. And I've gotten some. And they're asking you for information. Just know that the IRS is never, ever going to send you an email and ask you for information or tell you you got a refund. You have to input certain information first, right? Yep. No, that's true. I I get lots of them, too. I'd say most tax practitioners are well aware that there are a lot of these scams going on. So just be careful. Right. And I would even be a little bit worried if I got what what they're calling now, that now people, you're getting real letters. So make sure that you call the number that you know in your, you know, yellow pages or on the internet, go to the tax to the IRS website at irs.gov or something to get the local number to call because there are a lot of scams out there and those are privacy issues. So let me ask you something. Um, what about tax, tax disputes? Are there more these days, and what kinds are they? I, I think there are more. Um, I'm not certain why, but I suspect there are two reasons. One is uh, simply the economy. I think whether it, the disputed item is taxes or something else, um, I think it's simply harder for most uh, people and many companies um, to write checks today. So I think that breeds more disputes. I do think, though, more substantively, that people today are more savvy about tax controversies in particular than they used to be. Uh, there is, for, let's say, Internal Revenue Service, for, uh, for uh, income taxes, and this is really true across the entire spectrum of different taxes, that there's an established procedure that's administrative uh, to follow for most tax disputes, and you can often end up with a, with a good result uh, without ever going to court. So dispute is sort of a generic term. Um, and uh, as I say, I think um, there are fairly easy-to-follow procedures that you can follow, uh, either yourself or with a, uh, an accountant or, or a lawyer, uh, and people are doing it. I think also now it's so much easier to look up the IRS code yourself. You know, you all you have to do is go to irs.gov and you can look up the IRS code, the tax code. Yep. And yep. so people are becoming more savvy about that and, and realize that they can look up the code and say, well, wait a minute, what does this mean? And, you know, they, they have a greater understanding. Yeah, I, no, that, that's absolutely right. And you mentioned the irs.gov website. It's, it's actually very good, um, I think. Um, it has a lot of information on it. And as you say, I mean, it used to be that you had to make a trip to the county library or something, and now you can sit at your computer. They have lots of information releases. They have things that they call Q and A's that are question and answer kind of format things. 
Um, there are IRS publications. There's, there's quite a lot of stuff there that you can read about, about your own particular tax issue. And also they even have the uh, taxpayer advocate, the phone number there, as yep. well as you can write emails to them for a taxpayer advocate. Yeah, I, I had, um, you know, people have to remember that the IRS is made up of human beings, uh, you know, even though it's a governmental agency. And I was an expert witness on a case, and you probably know that case, but it was uh, a, a, actually a huge case that went on for years. And I won't say the name, but I could tell you separately, but I will, I will tell you what the, basically the story was, is that this gentleman was an inventor, and he was um, in a lawsuit for years with Texas Instruments. And after many, 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 many years, um, he was close to trial, and he moved from California to Nevada. And California has, uh, you know, state tax, and, and and Nevada doesn't. So anyway, long story, he moves. And uh, just re- right after he moves, he actually wins his case and gets millions of dollars for his patent infringement. And so a couple years after um, he moved from California to Nevada, the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board, which is an IRS, it's not the IRS, but it's a Franchise Tax Board in California, which is a tax case, um, decided that um, he, he really didn't move when he said he did and that he owed millions of dollars to the Franchise Tax Board. Right. And I do know the case. Okay, I and I, I was one of the part. one of the many privacy experts on that case, and it was a very interesting case. I mean, I had a whole room full of boxes to read because it went on and on, but the real issue was this auditor had done some terrible privacy invasions, talked to the ex-spouse, talked to neighbors, brought up everything, sent his social security number on requests for information to to places like Best Buy. Totally crazy. So it's just, you know, when we talk about privacy issues and and tax authorities, and I'm sure you do franchise tax board stuff too, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's just important to remember that these people are human beings and they have the same quirks and good, you know, good and bad. So just always to be very nice and very sweet and try and work things out is what I was going to say, because it just reminded me of what a horrible experience that uh, gentleman finally did actually win. Uh, And uh, you know about that case. But anyway, it's just important. It was a very, very interesting case. And um, the, the little taxpayer, thank God, after he spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees, um, finally did win. Uh, so that's a good story. But sometimes you can win against the IRS, and sometimes you can't, right? That's right. Okay. Um, what about the different players? How do you distinguish between attorneys and non-attorney tax advisors, like accountants and enrolled agents? How do you distinguish all that? Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, uh, I mean, there is a, a tax advisor privilege in the tax code. Um, so that's the good news. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't protect the client in the same way that attorney-client privilege does, so that anyone who's not an attorney doesn't have attorney-client privilege. Okay, and so that means what What, what exactly is the um, accountant-client uh confidential privilege i mean how far does that go how what's the difference 
Yeah. They, I mean, the um, essentially the accountant is, and, and I would just say that it's, it's almost an academic point, I think, in large part, uh, because generally speaking, um, you're not going to be trying to uh, prevent your accountant from turning over things to the government. You're, if you're audited uh, and the IRS asks for work papers and things like that, uh, you're going to want your accountant to provide them or you're going to want to provide them yourself. But of course, the question is, well, how much is there in the file, and what you know can you not provide legitimately? Um, so, I mean, I guess the the thumbnail is that this tax advisor privilege does not entirely uh, shield you. Um, but I'd also say, in 30 years of being a tax lawyer, I've rarely been involved in in disputes on this. Um, the main thing I would say is, if there are potential criminal tax uh, issues like of false or fraudulent returns or failure to file, um, you know, many years tax returns, then I would say you really need to think about attorney-client privilege. Right, right. So the maximum degree of protection to your data um, is probably with an attorney then. If you if you have these really challenging issues, you're really going to be wanting to go to a tax lawyer rather than a, a CPA. Is that yeah, right? I, think, I think that's right, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I understand, though, that you actually hire accountants yourself for clients as a way in bringing attorney-client privilege to the communications with the accountants. How does that work? Uh, sure. And, and this, um, this may sound like an end run, but I would say it, it isn't. It's done all the time. Um, suppose you have um, someone, Joe, let's call him. He hasn't filed tax returns for five years. Um, he, he owes a lot. The IRS is chasing him. Um, he, uh, let's say, he hires me to help him. Um, I'm a tax lawyer. Uh, I'm not an accountant, and I don't prepare returns. Um, and we're going to need an accountant to help. So either Joe hires one or I do it. If Joe hires the accountant, then his communications with the accountant are not privileged. That is, they may have privilege under the tax advisor privilege, which is, is uh, much weaker than attorney-client privilege, uh, if I hire the accountant uh, as my subordinate, and in effect I add the accountant's fees onto my bill to Joe, then I have brought the accountant underneath my own attorney-client privilege, and that way all of the communications with the accountant are protected as well. Right. And there's, I mean, every tax lawyer, I think, in the United States uses this um, way of uh, importing the protection of uh, attorney-client privilege with accountants. Right. And then you also, if you hire the accountant, the accountant is accountable to you to do the work that you need them to do. Correct. So you also have that client control and as well as that consultant control. So let's switch now to how I found you. I found you with your article that the ruling is a frightening step back for taxpayer privacy rights. And this was with a Textron case why don't you tell my audience about that case? Sure. Textron uh, is a case, or was a case, in which the IRS was trying to access work papers and tax advice um, in possession of Textron, its own papers. Um, and the idea the IRS had was basically to show that Textron knew that its tax positions were questionable. Uh, Textron refused to hand over the documents, so the IRS went to court to try to compel them. 
The U.S. District Court said that the documents were protected by work product privilege and therefore that Textron didn't have to hand them over. Right. And so um, how is that relevant to taxpayer privacy issues like me, All right, a smaller business? Yeah, fair enough. Well, the work product to privilege is a uh, is a very broad uh, privilege that, in- incidentally, is not limited to uh, tax law. It applies uh, in lots of other kinds of disputes, like civil litigation as well. Sure. Um, so, I mean, basically, the work product privilege says that if you are uh, preparing something in anticipation of litigation, um, even outside the scope of attorney-client privilege. Uh, that you don't have to hand it over because it's in anticipation of the litigation and it's one of the sort of precepts of our justice system that that would be unfair. Um, So it's separate from attorney-client privilege. And and the reason, I guess I mentioned attorney-client privilege again, was the Textron was sort of running a lot of numbers, calculating the pros and cons of its tax positions, um, and, and it was doing that at the time it was preparing its return uh, and with accountants, not with lawyers. So these were reasons that they couldn't seek protection under attorney-client privilege. It had to be under this work product uh, litigation um, uh, privilege. Okay, so the district court in Texas ruled that the IRS could not have access to these documents. So then the IRS appealed, right? So what happened? Right. So the IRS goes, the, the, the uh, taxpayer, Textron, wins in the district court. The IRS goes to the First Circuit and the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, says um, initially it agrees with the district court, and then the court sort of reverses itself. There's a rehearing of the case en banc, which means by the whole court, uh, as opposed to just a panel of, the, of three judges. So the whole court then rules that Textron is wrong, the IRS is right, and Textron has to hand over the documents. So how did they change their mind? It's, it's um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it seems a little frightening, I guess, when you think of, um, uh, you think of going to a court in any kind of a case, tax case or any other, and the court rendering a decision, and then the court reconsidering and rendering a different decision. But uh, but that's in fact uh, that's in fact what happened. It's, all I can say is this is viewed uh, this Textron case is viewed as a hugely important case, and both uh, the taxpayer Textron here and the IRS threw lots of resources uh, at it. So uh, what about the U.S. Supreme Court? Is they are they going to be hearing this case, or what's going on? Textron has asked uh, the Supreme Court to hear the case, uh, and there are many uh, amicus briefs, uh, so-called friend-of-the-court briefs, from various uh, concerned organizations. Uh, The American Bar Association is certainly one. Tax Executives Institute is another. There are various uh, taxpayer rights organizations, uh, too, that are asking the Supreme Court to hear the case. Uh, The Supreme Court hasn't yet decided. Uh, I hope they do take it, though. And so, in terms of their reasoning, what was the change in their reasoning when they actually, you know, they have to tell their reasoning, right? So- yeah, they, they do. And, and the basic, uh, at least so far as I can tell, the basic reasoning is, uh, and, and uh, any lawyers who might be listening, uh, regardless of their um, specialization, uh, will we'll know this uh, work product doctrine. You are preparing something in anticipation of litigation. Right. Uh, the Textron case really comes down to what do we mean by in, anticip- in anticipation of? In other words, 
how close in time does it have to be? What if, um, let's say, and, and Textron, I believe, was in this boat, what if um, I'm a taxpayer that I, I pretty much know I'm going to get audited, and therefore, even before I filed my return, I start preparing memos and you know file notes and going to a tax lawyer and all that, getting advice, uh, because I know I'm going to get audited and this is defend, to defend myself in the audit. Right. Um, in the old days, uh, pre-Textron, uh, there's no question that would have been work product protected. Now, Textron suggests, at least the current decision that people are trying to get the Supreme Court to reverse, is that um, it, 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 that may not have been prepared in anticipation of litigation because it was done you know, long before the fact, not like right before the litigation ensued. So they're talking about the, the nexus in time, that that's going to be the issue, that's the crux of it, if it's right before they're getting an audit or if it's months before there's even an audit being... Is that the kind of thing that they're talking about? I, I think it is. I, I mean, I, not, I don't want to stress this too much. Okay. I think um, part of it, if, if it's months before and um, you know, if you've gotten a notice that there is going to be litigation or something, then I think it's clearly protected. But I think the dicey one is when there isn't a dispute and it's not even clear that there will be a dispute, that's when uh, Textron says, well, by definition, then it can't be protected. That is, that, you know, is the open question right now. We're talking with a, one of the leading tax attorneys in the country. Uh, we are speaking now with Robert Wood, who is the founder of the firm Wood Porter in San Francisco. And you can find out more about him, his firm, see his Forbes articles and columns at woodporter.com. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And you're also listening to Privacy Piracy, and I'm your host, Mari Frank. So let me ask you, Rob, um, for the ordinary taxpayer, does this issue really, isn't it more for businesses to consider than than ordinary simple tax returns, or what? What do you think? It it is. I mean, it's it's certainly, um, uh, if not for businesses, it's certainly uh, more of a concern for complicated tax positions. Um, so, I mean, you're you're right. For ordinary kind of Joe taxpayer uh, citizens uh, who have you know maybe wage income and, and nothing else, it's probably not too relevant. And I and I guess even for most businesses, even big ones. Um, it's fortunate that there are rarely fights over this kind of thing. Um, most of the time, uh, certainly in my experience, um, you know, even where we're fighting about tax issues, taxpayers and the government exchange documents without incident. Uh, there usually aren't, if, if there are certain things that we aren't going to disclose based on, um, you know, for example, a tax opinion that's protected by attorney-client privilege, we just say, you know, we're not providing it. Right. And usually there aren't disputes. But um, so, but I'd say for most uh, people, it, it should um, you should think about how you're keeping your files and how your accountant is keeping his or her files, for example. So I would say, you know, if you have gotten a tax opinion letter uh, on some issue, um, keep it in a legal file. Don't keep it with your CPA. Your CPA might, with the best of intentions, turn it over to the IRS uh, without asking you. You know, and without meaning to cause you any trouble, and it might be better for you not to do that. Well, that's a very good idea. Just make a separate file for uh, legal tax opinions. Very good. 
Yeah, I think one of the one of the commentaries uh, that have been repeatedly made by by uh, people uh, after the Textron decision is is that that is that it's a good idea to have um, you know number crunching and uh, return prep uh, sort of calculations in one file, and if it's a memo from your accountant or a, or, or lawyer, especially about the legal issue about uh, you know whether you qualify for a deduction or whether something is or isn't income to you or something like that. Keep Have kind of a numbers file and a prose file, if you will. Yeah, and, and label it possible litigation with IRS. <laughs> well, you'd yeah. be surprised. I mean, the, the point you just made it may sound silly, but uh, actually I, I should have said that. It isn't silly. <laughs> labeling, labeling things uh, is, you know, sometimes when you call something uh, a particular name, it, it turns out to be true. And Labeling, uh, you know, protected, uh, privileged, uh, you know, um, documents is 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 a good way of helping to make sure that they become that. And it shows you your intent at the time. In other words, if you labeled them all in that file, you know, and that file was set up months and months earlier, then then that goes to show that you were anticipating that it might be a problem, and it was a legal problem. So, yep, yeah, absolutely. interesting. I thought also I saw that you had a Forbes article called um, 10 Ways to Audit-Proof Your Tax Return. Can you share that with us since tax time is in, in, in the realm right now? Uh, sure. I can, uh, I can at least uh, read you the, the 10 uh, ways. Okay. Um, I would just stress that in each, um, below each one of these sort of enumerated items, I've got a few paragraphs of explanation um, and you might want to read uh, the, the full text either at Forbes.com or, or WoodPorter.com. But my 10 ways are, one, don't claim flaky tax deductions. Yep. Two, use a professional or use software. In other words, don't use your you know royal manual typewriter to do the tax return. Three, don't file electronically. Um, anyone who wants to read my, uh, I think what one accountant called a diatribe on that subject, um, you might want to read it. Um, we, Mari, we talked briefly about that earlier. Right, right. Four, four check your math. Uh, simple math errors you want to avoid. Five, account for every Form 1099. Those are important, those things that we get in the mail around this time of year. Right. Six, disclose just enough. Um, seven, assemble your return correctly. Uh, eight, if you receive a small bill, just pay it. And, of course, what's small to different people is a different amount. What's small to Warren Buffett might not be small to me, but if it's a small bill not worth fighting about, uh, don't fight about it, just pay it. Pick your battles. Uh, what's that? <laughs> I said pick your battles if you, you know, you never know when it might come up. Indeed, pick your battles is a good way of saying it. Number nine, don't amend your return without thinking carefully about it. And number 10, don't ask for your money back. And number 10, I guess, I should particularly clarify because there is a way to uh, let your money sort of ride, so to speak, using the language of gambling. Um, if you are due a refund, a big refund, um, you may be more likely to trigger an audit if you ask for the money to be sent to you as opposed to if you say, well, I know I'm going to owe money in a few months anyway for my next estimated tax payment. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to I'm going to apply it and not ask for it to come back to me. 
and that is a way that uh, can reduce your audit exposure. Oh, that's interesting. I know my, my accountant always advises me to do that, that when I'm going to get a refund, and I go, well, why should they get the interest? I'll get the interest, or I can use it. She goes, well, I just think it's a better idea, but she never said it like that, that that might prevent me from getting an audit, and I have left stuff in there just to make it easy, especially when it's April and I have estimated taxes due in April. She goes, just leave it in there. Just let it pay for that. So that's very interesting. Hmm. Okay, um, you know, another question I had, and I know you've written about the Innocent Spouse uh, Relief Statute, and I mediate divorces, and I know in divorce that becomes a huge issue, whether somebody knew about what the other party did. Explain to us about the Innocent Spouse Relief Statute. Sure. It, it is an important topic, um, uh, and it's often uh, confused. I think uh, uh, the phrase innocent spouse uh, relief gets bandied about a lot. Uh, it should be no surprise that this usually comes up uh, as a marriage is um, coming apart or, or after it's ended. And the legal question is how much you can be liable to the IRS for tax problems of your spouse. Um, if you file joint returns, you are in effect, you know, married filing joint. You are, which is the, is is a good way to save some money, as we as we know. However, it does import uh, joint liability. Basically, you're treated as one taxpayer. Uh, joint, so yeah, what we call Sorry, jo- Yeah, I was just going to say, you're jointly, uh, inseparably, you know, liable for that. So you that's know, right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah what jointly and separately. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Which means that uh, if one spouse uh, dies the next day, for example, you have full liability for the amount of income that you've you've declared. Um, if you can show that you didn't know about the item and that you didn't benefit from it, so let's uh, say, for example, that your husband had secret gambling winnings or something. Or you how may, about made up? Maybe able to escape. It. <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah. If you if, but if you didn't know about it, but you benefited from it, then it's a problem, right? Yeah, that's right. And and in the the, the Forbes uh, article that I did on recently on this topic, um, I, I tried to I give a few examples from the cases. But uh, but you're you're right. You've got to be able to prove both elements. And if you didn't know about it, but in effect, uh, you know, you've been enjoying the remodeled kitchen. Uh, with the gambling winnings, and then you suddenly say, well, wait a minute, I never knew about it. Um, the IRS does have ways of um, denying your claim, and some of these cases go to court uh, be- because you enjoyed the fruits of the gambling winnings, even though you didn't specifically know uh, exact amounts and where they came from. But one one big, big important thing I should say is the whole procedure starts with an IRS form 8857, uh, that's an IRS form number 8857. You could get off the irs.gov website. There's an explanation of how you fill it out. One thing, if you're going to going to look into this and see if you qualify, timing is really important. Generally, you have to make this kind of a claim, an innocent spouse claim, no later than two years after the IRS first comes after you. So there is a fairly hard deadline uh, you know, you can't wait years and years and then say that you are protected by innocent spouse relief. So when you're writing, you know, when you're involved in a divorce and you don't know what might come up later, you know, like in your marital settlement agreement or a court, you might want to ask that uh, that that provision be available to you 
So uh, especially that's something that may come up in the future that you have already built that in that, that you can, uh, that you're eligible to, to look for that relief. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good plot. And, and the other thing, and this is fairly fundamental and it may sound distrustful, but, you know, prenups and postnups uh, are, are pretty common these days uh, among married um, people that, you know, have substantial assets or even some that don't have too many assets. Um, it's, you know, it's a good thing to have that clarity, have an agreement, you know, up front about what may happen if there's a, a parting of the ways. Uh, and consider filing married filing separate tax returns so that you don't merge everything. Then you avoid the you know the problem in the first instance. But the the problem with that is you often pay a lot more in taxes yep. than you would otherwise. So yep. Yeah, that that seems to be an issue. And you know I deal with that all the time. Whether people are going to have one more year to file jointly, well, you know you have to disclose everything. So it's an interesting issue. I. You also wrote another article that I thought was interesting, which was called Three Tax Mistakes You Make Every Day. Can you share those three? Because we're getting close to the end, but I thought that would be great. Sure. The, the three, uh, and again, I'll give you the sort of headlines, um, leaving the nuances for your listeners to read themselves. But um, my three were, one, keep business and personal affairs separate. I guess we all break that rule to some extent, but that is a good um, kind of watchword to, to live by. Business and personal are separate. Uh, second, keep good records. That's obvious. Uh, third, respect and keep those Form 1099s. This time of year, uh, those little pieces of paper that come in, in the mail, uh, typically in January, um, are really important, January and February, are really important uh, you should have a little collection of them that you got uh, in the earlier part of this year and have them ready for tax time. Uh, open them when they come. Uh, make sure that they're correct and make sure that you account for them on your return. Oh, terrific. We're just about out of time. How about sharing your website and maybe one piece of advice? Sure. Uh, the website address is uh, www.woodporter, which is w-o-o-d-p-o-r-t-e-r.com. Uh, there are all of these Forbes articles uh, and the Daily Journal ones, uh, for that matter, Mari, that you've alluded to and that I've mentioned are, are posted there, and, and some other things, uh, too, that you might want to look at. It's a great website. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, and I, I guess if uh, a parting piece of advice uh, would be would be probably my number two in my three tax mistakes article, things that most people on some level don't do, and that is, Keep good records. Uh, I'm a, a tax lawyer, not an accountant, so I don't prepare returns. But as I formulate tax positions, um, tax arguments, um, if I'm writing an opinion or if I'm uh, litigating an issue with the IRS, um, I still need records. I need, uh, in effect, ammunition. And I would say clients who have good and thorough records and who document things make my job uh, much, much easier and therefore their tax position rosier. So I'd Sounds say good. the admonition about keeping, <laughs> uh, keeping good records goes a long, long way. Okay. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. You're terrific, and we've sure learned a lot, and it's going to be very good for all of us getting ready to file our taxes. So thank you, Robert Wood. We'll have you on again. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. 
Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests. You could download podcasts, even listen to archived interviews right there. And we would love to hear from you in an email. You can write us right from there. Tell us about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.